Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Okay, we're going to have our Bible reading now. Uh, If you have your Bibles, do turn to Mark chapter 15, uh, verse 21 onwards. Uh, If you haven't got your Bibles with you, it will be up on the screen there, and uh, you can follow along with me. Mark chapter 15, verse 21 to 39. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, so that we may believe, see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with um, sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple tore in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. How would you feel if this was your son, your daughter, your loved one? Or your friend. It's easy coming to Easter and reading through Jesus' death and resurrection with a sense of familiarity. A ho-hum, heard it all before, what's for lunch kind of mentality. Fearing that perhaps I could fall into that trap this year, I recently reread the story and I tried to read it through the eyes of a father. I tried to feel what it would be like if I was reading about the suffering of my son. It broke my heart. I suddenly realized that when I read this story, I so often find myself detached from Jesus in a way that I'd never be detached from him if it was my son. From a father's perspective, this story is horrific. And yet it's important for us to immerse ourselves in the suffering of this story because it highlights not only the devastation of sin, but the power of God's love towards us. 
What Jesus went through is beyond what any other human has ever experienced. And I want us to see this through the eyes of a father today because it brings the reality and the emotion and the pain of this event into the story. In our house at home, Kim and I have four beautiful kids and we love them all equally. But today I'm going to make reference to our son more, not because I love him any more than our beautiful daughters, but simply because today we're talking about God the Father and Jesus the Son at Easter. We love our little guy Lenny. Uh, for those that don't know, he's four years of age and he's a, a wonderful kid. He's full of life, he's full of energy, he's intelligent, he's got a good sense of humour and he's fairly cheeky. A year ago, Lenny, at this time of year, at Easter time, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And it really came out of nowhere. We have no family history of it, and we were typically ignorant of something that we didn't know much about. Didn't even know the difference between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. And for those who don't know, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease that comes about when the pancreas shuts down and it stops producing insulin. Prior to insulin medication... Um, patients had a life expectancy of less than 12 months, which highlights the seriousness of the condition. And so people with type 1 diabetes depend every day on insulin um, to keep living, and they depend on insulin injections every day to produce the insulin that the body cannot produce. And so they must test their blood levels up to 10 times a day. And at this point in time, there is no cure, and it can't be prevented. And so unless there's a miracle or they come up with a cure every day for the rest of Lenny's life, he will need an injection of insulin or an insulin pump to keep him alive. And it's certainly manageable today, and people keep reminding us of that. And we're very grateful for the healthcare system, but the truth is it needs to be managed every minute of every day. Regular hospital visits, management plans at kinder, finger pricks, injections, overnight checkups every single night. And over the last 12 months, we've adapted, adapted to a new way of living. Um, lucky we've had not much else going on. I mean, Kim had open heart surgery when we planted a church. But aside from that, uh, it's been a pretty quiet season, so it was good timing. But we've really adapted over the last 12 months to a new way of life. And you, you get to the point where you feel like you're really coping with all the emotions of that. But then something will come up that will trigger your emotions again. A couple of weeks ago, the government made an announcement that they were going to subsidise continuous glucose monitoring for all type 1 diabetics under the age of 21. Let me read you the article in the Herald Sun, the first paragraph. The title of the article is The Gift of New Life. The first paragraph says, Parents will no longer have to worry about their diabetic kids dying through the night with the government today announcing free continuous glucose monitoring kits for children under 21. I thought it would be hard, I didn't think it would be this hard. (laughs) Parents will no longer have to worry about their children dying overnight. There's moments like that where the gravity of a situation hits home. 
You might be thinking, why am I sharing this on Good Friday? Well, I'm not sharing it because we want sympathy. There's many people much worse off than us. I'm not mentioning it because we want a medal. We would do whatever it takes to care for our kids and our loved ones, and I know so would you. But it's a reminder that when something happens to our kids, the pain and the emotion and the love all of a sudden becomes acutely apparent in the big things, but even in the little things. Just the other week, um, Kim was playing with Lenny before bed at night and Lenny started at four-year-old kinder this year and he's loving kinder. He's made lots of friends there and um, it'd be fair to say that most of them are girls. (laughs) That's my boy in our household. The girls can start dating at 30, but Lenny's allowed to go now. (laughs) And he loves kindergarten and he's made lots of friends and every day he's excited about getting up and going to kinder. But there was one day when Kim was talking to him and he said to Kim, Mummy, today at kinder nobody talked to me. My friends wouldn't play with me and I didn't want to play with the randoms. <laughs> the things kids say, the randoms. And the next morning he got up, he woke up out of bed and he didn't want to go to kinder for the first time. And we all know that's just what happens at kinder and school. It's a, it's a part of everyday life. But the thought that your kid doesn't want to go to kinder because they felt like they had no friends, even if it was just for one day, as a parent, you know that that hurts. A few nights later, I was reading him a bed before bedtime, a, a book before bedtime, about a cranky bear who plays the violin. And when we finished the book, I told him that when I was a young boy in primary school, I used to play the violin. It's not something that I tell many people. Um, not because I'm embarrassed of the violin, but I'm ashamed of the violence I inflicted on that stupid thing when it wouldn't stop screeching and do what I wanted it to do. And I remember sitting upstairs in bed at my parents' house, and I think it drove them nuts. And I remember getting so frustrated that I'd grab my violin and I'd belt it on the mattress and a number of times my mum walked in and busted me. It's a difficult time of life that I don't like to share and remember. But I remember him asking me the question, why did you play the violin? And when he asked that, I was thinking to myself, that's a good question. Why did I play the violin? But the reason I played it, and this is what I explained to him, is that my best friend Leon played the violin. And even though I'd rather play the guitar at that point in my life, um, I chose to play the violin because I wanted to hang out with Leon. And he said, oh, oh, okay. And I said, but it's a sad story. And he said, why? And I said, well, my friend Leon got cancer and he died. And Lenny said, well, what's cancer? And I explained that it's a horrible disease that makes people very sick and sometimes they die. And there was silence as the little cogs inside his head started ticking over and turning around. And then after a long pause, I hear his little voice and he says, Dad? And I said, yeah. And he says, one day I'll get cancer. And I said, no, (laughs) no, you won't. I said, not everyone gets it. And we hope and pray that you never get it. And it would break daddy's heart if you got cancer. And he said, why? That's the word of the year. (laughs) Why? I said, because daddy loves you with all of his heart. There was another pause. And then he goes, (laughs) ah. He goes, daddy, can I have a hug? I said, no, son, shut your eyes and get to sleep. Uh, no, I didn't. I, I didn't do that at all. I said, sure, sure, buddy, we can do that. And he gave me what he calls a squeezy one. And the point is this, that we all love our children. And you could be up here in my place today telling a story about your kids. 
We love our children. We don't want them to be sick. None of us want them to suffer. And we certainly would be heartbroken if they died. And if you've experienced that today and you're here or you're listening on the podcast, our hearts and thoughts are with you this Easter time. But as I reread the Easter story this year, I really tried to avoid just scanning over it and rather I tried to absorb it from the perspective of a father. And as I did, my heart broke as I considered what the father endured as his precious son suffered such tragic injustice, such incredible pain and death on our behalf. Prior to this morning's passage, Jesus had already suffered so much. He had a one-way mission to die, but his suffering on the way to that sacrificial death was immense. Leading up to the cross, he had been persecuted, hunted by the religious leaders who had eventually brought him before the Roman governor on trial. The trial was a complete sham and a legal process where he was falsely accused and convicted. There was a grave miscarriage of justice that had occurred. All of his followers at this point had abandoned him and left him They'd fled for their lives, but most painfully, his best friends had all fled. Peter, one of his three closest followers, had at this point denied three times that he even knew him. The thought of our children in the school ground having no one to eat their lunch with and no one to play with at lunchtime is a heartbreaking thought, but I want you to imagine for a moment God the Father watching his son alone, rejected, abused, not a friend in the world. Verse 15, last week we looked at the fact that Pilate had released a violent criminal, criminal Barabbas and had Jesus flogged. To put this into equivalent for us, to bring it into our context, can you imagine if it was your son who was an innocent person and the, the, the rulers bring out another man who's a violent criminal? In our context, someone like an evil man, a notorious underworld figure, a renowned terrorist, a dangerous person. And the two men are held up, your son, your child, and this violent criminal. And you know that your son's innocent. And yet the crowd starts chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And they're not talking about the criminal, they're talking about your son. As I immersed myself in the story, I felt the anger welling up. I felt the devastation of injustice. But most of all, I felt the pain of suffering. Imagine watching your son being led away in those circumstances while that violent criminal is free and your son is chained. Imagine him being led away and being surrounded by a bunch of soldiers who intimidated him and beat him with a staff. They mocked him and they spat in his face and they punched him in the head over and over and over again until he was unrecognisable. They take a thorn of crowns and they ram it into his skull and then they flog him. And the Bible doesn't go into great detail on the suffering of Christ, but the flogging is what is known as a scourging. A Roman scourge was a short whip with three leather straps on it and a short handle and the three leather straps were knotted with small bits of lead and other metal and bone and it was designed to quickly remove the flesh of a victim. Bible History Online talks about deep lacerations, torn flesh, exposed muscles and excessive bleeding would leave the criminal half dead. It was known as the halfway death, but that didn't do it justice because there were many people who endured a scourging who didn't make it through. It was horrific. 
By the end of a scourging, the back of the victim would look like mincemeat. At first, the thongs cut through the skin only, but then as the blows continue, they cut deeper and deeper into the tissue, producing first an oozing blood from the capillaries and the veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles, the small balls of lead. First produce large, deep bruises, which are broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognisable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it's determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. This is what Jesus endured. He had been beaten so badly. And in the prophetic servant song of Isaiah 52, it says that there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. We're reading about the precious son of the living God. Jesus has been repeatedly beaten And from that point, from the governor's palace, they lead him along what was known as the road of sorrows. And he was so badly injured, as we saw this morning, in his weakness. And after losing so much blood, he couldn't even carry his own cross. Simon, a man in the crowd, was forced to join the procession and carry Jesus' cross to the place of execution, which verse 22 describes as Golgotha, the place of the skull. And I imagine it to be exactly as it sounds place of sadness, a place of suffering, and a place of death. And they lay the cross on the ground and they put Jesus on it. And they stretch out one of his hands. And they take a heavy, square, wrought iron nail and they pound it through his wrist. And they take his other arm and they stretch it out. And they do exactly the same thing. And then they lift the cross up into place. Then with both feet extended... With his toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. His body weight is held on his arms. Jesus would have been forced to push himself up on his feet to help carry the weight. But the agony would have been unbearable as the nail tears through the nerves between the metatarsal bones in the feet. At this point, his arms would fatigue The cramps would sweep over the muscles, bringing deep, relentless, throbbing pain. Hanging by his arms, his pecs would be paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream before a terrible crushing pain commences deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It's now almost over. The loss of tissue fluid has reached a critical stage. The compressed heart can barely pump heavy, thick blood into the tissue. The lungs are trying but can only take in small gulps of air. <sighs> I want you to picture this today. I want you to enter into the pain. And now I want you to imagine that was your son. Your daughter. Your friend. Your loved one. If that was my child, I would kick, 
and I would scream and I would fight with every ounce of my strength to save my child, for justice to be done, for my child to come down off that cross. I couldn't bear the thought that I'd allowed my son to die. But here's the stunning part of the Easter story. This is the changing point. That what happened to Jesus the Son was the will of God the Father. Isaiah 53.10 said, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge that my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. We read the story and we get to this point in the narrative and it'd be easy to think, well, it couldn't possibly get any worse than this. But the very worst part comes still in verse 34. We find the most painful part of all where Jesus cries out in that loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, Lemma Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cries out those words and the sky turns black and the earth goes dark and there's an eerie silence where the darkest moment in human history is reflected in creation itself. The moment that Jesus became sin. On our behalf, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. It's the moment where the father abandoned his son to death. And we read the story and we think, how can this be? A few years ago, I heard a story that impacted my life greatly and I shared it before, but it's worth sharing again on Good Friday. It's the story of a man named John Griffith. In the 1930s, he had a job operating a a railroad bridge, and the bridge um, would have to be lifted to allow um, boats to go underneath it, and it would have to be put down to allow the trains go over the top, and it went right over the top of the Mississippi River. Every day at scheduled times, he would have to lift the bridge and put it back down again, depending on whether ships or trains were coming through. And in the summer of 1937, John Griffith um, took his eight-year-old son to work with him. His eight-year-old son uh, had a hero. His hero was his dad. And he was so excited to finally get to go to work with his dad. He couldn't wait to see the boats and the barges. He couldn't wait to watch the trains. He couldn't wait to see that big bridge go up and down. He was excited about his hero, his dad, pulling the levers and pressing the buttons. And so it was like a dream come true. And so he went to work with his dad that day. And they spent the morning together. And he was like his father's shadow, watching everything his dad did. And it was such an exciting day, one of the greatest days of his life. At lunchtime, there were no trains coming through for a while, so John Griffith lifted the bridge. And they went to the observation deck, and they spent time together having lunch. And John Griffith was a great storyteller, so he's telling his son all the stories of the great things that happen at work. And he was lost in his train of thought, um, pardon the pun, uh, and he was awoken from that train of thought by the whistling of a train in the distance. And he got so carried away with the story that he forgot there was a train coming that needed to go over the bridge, but the bridge was up. And so he still had time, and so he didn't panic, but he jumped to his feet and he ran to the control room. And he was about to pull the lever to allow that bridge to go down and that train to go over the top with 400 passengers on board. But before he did, he had a standard practice, and that was to look down 
to make sure that there were no ships coming under the bridge. And so he looked down, and as he looked down out of the corner of his eye, something caught his attention that almost made his heart stop. He looked down, and his precious son had slipped from the observation deck and had fallen into the huge gears that operate the bridge. He was still alive, he was conscious, but his left leg was caught in one of the cogs. John was left with an amazing dilemma. He could pull the lever and he would know that that train with 400 passengers would cross over the bridge of the Mississippi safe to the other side. But he knew if he pulled that lever to save those people, that his son would be crushed. His eyes filled with tears of panic. Can you imagine how he would have felt in that moment? His head was spinning. What was he to do? But he knew what he had to do. And so he buried his his head in his hand. And with his other hand, he pulled the lever. And the giant bridge came down. And that train passed safely over that bridge. But at the same time, his son was crushed. When he lifted his head, his face smeared with tears. He looked into the passing windows of the train. There were businessmen casually reading their afternoon papers. There was a uniformed conductor looking at his large vest pocket watch. There was well-dressed ladies in the dining car, sipping coffee and children pushing long spoons into dishes of ice cream. No one looked at the control house. No one looked down at the great gearbox. With wrenching agony, John Griffith cried out at the train, I sacrifice my son for you. Don't you even care? But nobody heard. They never even looked up from their newspapers, their watches, their coffee or their ice cream. How could a father make such a choice to abandon his son? John Griffith sacrificed his son so that those people could be saved. Jesus dying on the cross was not the act of a mean and uncaring God. It was the ultimate act of love expressed towards us. As Jesus died on that cross, the curtain in the temple tore in two, symbolizing that in Christ all people who have accepted him could now freely come into relationship with God because in Christ On that cross, our sin was paid. On the cross, he took your place and he took mine. God gave his one and only son freely that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. I want to finish today by highlighting the criminals on either side of the crucified Christ. In verse 32 of the passage, It says that those crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. And that is true. But in the parallel account in Luke's gospel, it gives more detail. And it says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. But the other criminal rebuked him and said, don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
These two criminals made two different decisions. One decided to join the crowd and reject Jesus. The other one decided to reject the crowd and to receive Jesus as Lord and Saviour. As we look at the two criminals on the platform here, you'll see that each of them are carrying their own sin. Obviously, they were guilty for their earthly crimes and they were punished accordingly. But also, in just a few moments, they would have to stand before God and give an account for their sin against him. For one of them, that's exactly what happened. He'll spend eternity separated from relationship with God. He'll pay the full penalty of his sin. But for the other criminal, he put his faith in Christ and his sin was taken from him. And Jesus took it upon him instead. Jesus took his place. He still died a physical death on that cross and justice was served as it should have been. But when he stood before God, justice was also served, but it was Jesus who took his punishment instead of him. These two men represent all of humanity and the choice that each of us face to either receive or reject Jesus Christ. I hope today has been a reminder that God sacrificed his beloved son for you and for me. I pray that we won't be like the people on that train that day going over the Mississippi River who missed it or simply didn't seem to care. Because the Bible says those who believe in their heart and declare with their mouth that Jesus is Lord will be saved. I want to encourage you this Easter to put your faith in Jesus the Son who suffered on our behalf so that we could come back into relationship with God the Father who allowed his son willingly to be crushed because of the life-changing love that he has for each of us.